All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gotham Writers Inside Writing. Today, we're going to be talking about picture books. Uh, but first, a couple of announcements. As I've been saying, uh, the, the Gotham Writers Conference is going to be on Zoom this year, but registration is open for October 16th through 18th. We have our own picture book table there. So if you have a picture book that you want to pitch to two agents that represent picture books, including our guest today, uh, you, are, you are welcome to register for that at any point. Also, we have a special query evaluation episode of Inside Writing coming up next week. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show, as well as more details on the Twitter pitch party uh, at the end of the show as well. About today, remember that at any point in the show, you can ask questions. Some of you are already using the Q&A function to talk about the music choice for today. So thank you for getting involved already. If you have questions relating to picture books uh, for either of our panelists, you can start posing them at any point, and I'll ask some of them at the end of the show also. Uh, anyways, enough of that. Let's talk about picture books. Uh, we're going to start with a quote from Tommy DiPaolo, who said, A picture book is a small door to the enormous world of the visual arts, and they're often the first art a young person sees. We're going to talk more about that quote later, but for now, let's meet our guests First, literary agent at the Stamola Literary Studio, Erica Rand Silverman. Hello, Erica. Hi, yes, thank hi. you so much for having me. Thank you for being hi, here. Hi, everybody. And then our author guest for today, uh, author of several New York Times bestselling picture books, including the Mindfulness I Am series, Susan Verde. Hello, Susan. Hi, thanks hi, for Susan. having me. Thank you both for being here. So. We're going to start the show like we always do with a definition. Susan, other than just being a book with pictures, how would you define a picture book? What, what audience is it intended for? Wow. So uh, picture books are, well, I, I'm repeating something that's been said many times before, but picture books are both uh, mirrors and windows, right? They are a reflection of ourselves and they are an introduction to another world. Um, and I personally think picture books are for every age. You know, a picture book is being read to a younger child, but it's an adult who picks up the picture books. So um, picture books have this power to break down these big concepts into very palatable pieces. So um, that would be how I would define and describe picture books. Mm -hmm. And Erica, first off, if you have anything to add to that, and then I wanted to ask you what the difference was between picture books, board books, chapter books, these other books for young readers. I think the only thing that I would add to that is that picture books um, are an opportunity to read aloud. And that also kind of segues us into your next question, uh, is that that picture book experience uh, is, is that, some more so than others, uh, are going to be used as a performative act as well as an independent reading experience. So that's an important thing to consider. It's something that agents and editors and librarians and teachers and parents and children themselves are considering when they read a picture book. So if we're going to look down um, to a board book that's for you know, a very young child, they're specifically bored, they're thick, 
baby or young child can chew on them, they can try to rip them, uh, and they cannot succeed. And this is why we create books um, for little hands to be able to grip and hold and move on their own to give them agency. And if you've ever seen, you know, a two-year-old try to navigate a picture book, it's much harder, and they're inevitably going to rip those pages, and off comes the dust jacket. And so board books are a way to engage our youngest children in the reading experience uh, before they're able to actually perhaps sit through an entire narrative and before they're able to actually physically hold a picture book. Uh, and then moving upwards, you have uh, early readers, which um, so historically publishers and schools sort of worked together to create leveled readers, which were based on a child's reading level. Uh, but even beyond those leveled readers that you might find from Harper or Scholastic, uh, there are you know, early readers that are um, no chapters, but their trim size uh, is usually a little bit longer and thinner. We're starting to segue our children out of these sort of full spreads, lap book experiences into a smaller uh, reading experience so they can begin to feel they are moving up. The word choice is carefully selected to coincide with what children are learning. And then you start moving into chapter books, which kids are beginning to be, be able to follow a story from uh, just one moment to many moments that are adding into a plot line um, up from there. Yeah, gotcha. but the like early readers and chapter books are still often heavily illustrated to help with the decoding of the story through the visuals. Right. Thank you. That was very, very precise with each level. So it's very helpful. Um, Susan, you, you brought this up uh, about picture books being meant to be read aloud. Do you write with that in mind? Do you write with the parent in mind or are you targeting it towards the children? I mean, when I'm writing, I, I am typically writing um, without Anyone specific in, I mean, obviously I, I'm, my, I, I'm writing with the, with the young reader in mind in terms of the language I, I might choose or, um, and how advanced I might make some of it and how you know, familiar I might make some of it. But really when I'm writing, I am writing based on my theme, my idea, my, my story. So um, I will perhaps if I, in a first draft, if I write my story, and then as I edit, it's during the editing process that I really start to have the reader, both the adult and the child in mind, and how the conversations might be fostered, how the language, you know, how specific the language is. Um, but as I'm doing my first draft, it's really just the story. And then when I go back, then of course I have those, those people, those participants in mind, because I do want it ultimately to be interactive, to be something um, that inspires conversation and connection. So on some level, those things come into play. But initially, it's just, it's just the story. Mm -hmm. And at what point do you ever read it aloud to make sure that it kind of flows nicely? My favorite thing to do is give it to Erica to read aloud because she is the best read aloud per I mean she really you just you want I'd have her read a grocery list and you'd be like oh my gosh read me more I so love to read aloud <laughs> she should be doing that you know in addition that should be her side side hustle but um 
I do read them aloud. I read them aloud. I mean, I have three children who are now teenagers, so often they're a little bit over it. But I do share share my stories, or I'll read them aloud myself to hear. So yeah, I, that is definitely part of the creative process because I do that will often help me, you know, figure out a if things are going in the right direction, or b the the language choice. So reading aloud is is definitely a part of the whole process for sure. And Erica, I feel like I now know the answer to this question already, but what, what value do you put when you're reading it? Like, do you read the book aloud when you see a query? Do you read it or do you just read it? Always. Kind of, okay. <laughs> I mean, listen, sometimes you get a query and from the very beginning, it might not be for you. Um, but if I'm really considering something, I read it aloud. I also have two young children, uh, one who is nine and one who is seven. <clears throat> I also believe picture books are for everybody. You know, some people were like geeky fans of, Star Wars, I'm a geeky fan of picture books. And so um, I, feel like I, I feel like everybody else should be too. Um, but I will read aloud to my boys a lot. Um, but I read out loud for myself and I encourage my clients. And it amazes me because I do have clients who will write a picture book text and it's wonderful. Uh, and they haven't read it aloud. So I, I mean, I like to say if you're not reading aloud, that's problematic, but it's not true because some people still can manage to do it very successfully without having gone through that process. But for others, it's integral, you know, and, and, and also not even just reading it aloud, but playing with the page turns, mm -hmm. having like making yourself a dummy, just out of just taking a bunch of paper and stapling it together and just plotting out where the text might go. Uh, within those pages and then having that experience of the page turn it, that's you know this is what's going to really elevate your story when it's being evaluated by editors or agents mm. and, and that's interesting because I wanted to talk about page turns as well how much value do you put on an author's ability to know where a page turn comes is that something that factors into the evaluation process I mean that's something often that an agent might help with and that's you know and like with Susan, I'm always like, let's paginate. She's like, I don't, I'm not a pet. She's not a paginator. That's not what Susan does, right? So, you know, we've also been working with her editor for a long time. And like that happens in that, in that editing process. And I have other clients who, who, who are, I always encourage it. I mean, we've been working together a long time and I still encourage it, but um, it doesn't mean that you're going to do it. And that, and that's fine too. Uh, it can happen with the editor. But if you are first breaking in and, um, and you're looking to hook people, it's just one way to hook. You know, maybe your concept is killer, you know, and like that's where the hook is. Maybe your use of language and wordplay and jokes are where your strength is and that's your hook. You know, maybe it's the way you've developed a character and that's your hook. Or maybe it's that you really know how to land your, your text with those page turns. So it's just one more way to hook your new audience. I have to say that my very first book, The Museum, um, I worked with uh, the illustrator Peter Reynolds and together we did create a dummy actually on file cards. And, you know, so we did paginate on file cards and he did make a little sketch and we did, you know, I did place the text. Um, that was probably the only dummy I've ever really created. Although when I write, I do tend to break things up in sort of stanzas. So that's how I feel it goes page by page. I just don't 
do the paging, but it's, it's definitely chunked in a way that I think might work. And what's interesting is what, what happens at the publishers is different too. So I'll see sometimes an editor, you know, with my illustration clients, sometimes an editor and art director will give um, one of my artists a text and say, how would you paginate this? Sometimes they will give my artist a text and it's paginated. Sometimes they will give the artist an actual dummy, like a white, a white dummy where they've already inlaid the text. And then my artists sometimes will say, Ooh, this will land so much better here. Um, can we move these lines a little bit? So it's like even that process on the publishing side, once a book has been acquired is really different depending on who you're working with. So would you recommend that, that people make a dummy of their book before querying it? I do, especially when you're early in your career. I think it's a wonderful exercise. Mm -hmm. It's just one more way for you to interact with your work and see it sort of in a new way. Mm -hmm. so and to tell if it's too, way too long or way too short and where does the climax fall and like, you know. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Uh, I, I want to get into the, the author-illustrator relationship if it's not the same person. So Erica, getting this out there, do picture book authors have to bring their own artists to the table? Do they have to be an artist themselves or can they just no. provide the text? Provide the text. Okay. So I know that there's a lot of talk around um, festivals and conferences and writer groups that there's, you know, like the death of the picture book text and nobody wants just text anymore. And I understand it's a very, it's an extremely competitive marketplace. But I assure you, there are editors and art directors who have a list of artists who they want to work with. And they are combing through piles. They are calling me, they are calling other agents to say, do you have a text that might work for this, for this illustrator? So just for that reason alone, editors and art directors want texts. They have artists they want to work with. They have artists in their arsenal they already work with that they want to keep working who don't write for themselves. That's number one. Number two, that creative process of matching an, an author with an artist, it's like magic. It's really fun. Um, and editors and art directors love that process. And, and so we need, they need writers in order to be able to make that process still happen. Um, and I, I do think unless you are, unless you found yourself in a creative relationship where you are creating something with somebody, where you are behind the words and they are behind the visual art and this thing is coming out of the two of you and you cannot stop it. I would never discourage that from happening. Uh, but if you have created a text and now you find yourself feeling like you must find an artist in order to um, get that text acquired, that is not necessarily true. With that said, even myself as an agent, I am finding that I too am looking to package texts with artists before I go to publishers with them. Uh, but it is a risk. And um, I have access to um, 
my own arsenal of artists, the, the artists of the studio. I have access to friends who are agents and their arsenal of artists where I can pull something together that I think will be appealing to publishers on many levels. You know, it's not just the, the talent to make the right match. Uh, but it's also understanding um, the ins and outs of how an artist can lift up a new writer, how a new, how an, an established writer can lift up an artist, having a sense of where uh, an artist's art is living in the marketplace in the moment. Uh, and as a new writer, you might not have the knowledge of the ins and outs of that, and you might bring somebody on, and they might actually weight your story down in the wrong direction, and you might be losing out. So, Susan, when you're writing your stories, do you have an idea in your head of what you want them to look like? Obviously, you've worked with several authors multiple times, so if you know you're working with them, you can see it happening. But for ones where you don't have an artist already attached, is that something that's going on in your head? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I well, so for example, with I've worked with Peter Reynolds, who's the illustrator for the I Am series and some of my other books, and I... Um, don't really, I, I know, I, I have a sense of how the illustrations might go, even though he always surprises me. Um, I, I, I sort of understand the style and understand that he'll understand what I'm saying and, and how it might be brought to life. Um, but in other cases, yes, as I'm writing, I'm certainly visualizing things. Uh, I have images, you know, I wrote Hey Wall, a book about um, uh, street art and murals on a wall. And I, you know, I was thinking about street art. I was channeling the street artists that I love and um, have sort of grown up with. But I also never get stuck on the visuals because um, I have learned to sort of trust and have faith and kind of give it up to uh, whomever the illustrator ends up being. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky, I guess, that I've had, first of all, wonderful illustrators working on, on things. But also, you know, it's funny because you may have a sort of vision in your head, um, but when you get the illustrations back and you see them, not only, for me anyway, am I sort of surprised and very emotional and like, you know, oh my gosh, I never would have thought of that, but also, they put in these little, sweet, amazing details that never would have entered my head. You know, the, the animal in the background or the, or the way a room is, is decorated or, or, or a city street, you know. So it's just, um, I, I just have learned that I have to allow someone else, you know, I have to make my words um, intentional enough that somebody else will be inspired to create something incredible. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting because I, I was comparing two of your books, The Rock and Roll Soul and Hey Wall, two very different artistic styles. <clears throat> was that something that you intended or when it came back, it just fit the, the spirit of the story so well? I mean, each one of them, you know, Matthew Cordell uh, was the illustrator on Rock and Roll Soul and um, John Parra is the illustrator on Hey Wall. And um, I sort of had no thoughts. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I knew, I knew Hey Wall, I wanted a wall. I knew for Rock and Roll Soul, I wanted a kid who loved music. And that was about it. Um, and so I was, um, 
yeah, so I was, I was, I am glad for the difference because they are two very different books. And it's sort of, um, again, it's that kind of, you know, windows and mirrors things. It, it's, it's new worlds, you know, other things that you might not see. And I, I don't want each of my books to be exactly the same because the stories are different. Um, but I, you know, as far as what they chose and how they express the story, I mean, both times I was, you know, I often, when the world allowed, I used to work in Starbucks or a coffee shop, right? I did not sit in my home. And so I cannot tell you how many times I have received the sketches in, a, in an email and burst into tears in the middle of Starbucks because I was so happy and moved and, and surprised and in awe of the art that I was looking at, you know, that came from my story. So it's, yeah, it's great that it's so different. It, it's, it's sort of the way it is. And I, and I'm glad that that's, that's the process. Mm -hmm. and, and Erica, do you evaluate the artistry of a book the same that you would the story? Does it have to tell the story the right way? Do you mean once it's matched up with an, and the art or yeah once it's once the art has come back for the story is there an evaluation process where you decide if that's right or whose decision does that fall to yeah i mean depending on how far along and like one of my author clients are in their career really makes difference by how much consultation or approval they have over both the selection of the artist over you know how the work is being um represented uh, I just, I'm sure you've all heard this before, but just in case not, I think one important point to make is that when you are writing a text, you want to make sure um, that you're not telling what can be shown. So that's one like really easy way to elevate um, your work. Uh, back to if you play with the dummy exercise, is that if you're you know, somebody asked, should I actually sketch it out? You shouldn't actually sh submit your own sketches. But if you, if you do play with that, you'll see if, you're, if the picture is telling the same exact thing or showing the same exact thing that your text has just told. So an artist is often looking to tell the story, but not... Um, and this is where we get a little different with early readers, where you do want the text and the art to sort of tell the same because the art is specifically there to help the reader decode. But in a picture book, it's to enhance. It's to, you know, it's, if, if your story could be, if your text could be read aloud exactly as is and doesn't need pictures, to extend the story, to give the full picture, then you're writing perhaps a poem for a magazine. Right? Your text should need the art in order to come to life. Otherwise, you are telling too much uh, in the text itself. Um, but back to your original question, yes, we, I do get involved with my clients. Like when, for example, Susan's book that's going on sale um, this fall, I Am One, a book of action. It's, um, it's a powerful book. And what Susan, you know, Susan approaches um, issues that are sensitive in her books. 
uh, and she's sort of unafraid that way. And, and she often is a trailblazer to approach them before other people have. And so we need to be extremely careful about representation and this mirrors and windows. And because her work is so atmospheric and because they're poems, um, the, the visual is carrying, is grounding it in sort of a narrative and when it does that, um, we have to be really sure that that narrative is representative of what um, Susan wants it to be and thinks it should be, while also giving freedom to Peter to take it in a direction that he feels it should be. And so it's extremely clever. We were, and sometimes the text even changes. Um, that's, I always know a good editor when they, when they pay you out on your, on your text has been delivered and accepted, but they say, you know, once the art is in, once the, it, we might go back in and change some of that text because that it's inevitable that that is going to happen. Um, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be a part of that process. because I love it. Uh, but it's really more about Susan and the, and the, and the artist and the editor and, and the art director, but I'm another brain, you know, who gets to weigh in. So you touched on a subject I want to get back to later about about making serious subjects digestible for young readers. But I want I want to ask one more question about the the working with artists. Susan, is there ever back and forth when you see an art for your book? Is there ever a time where you think this doesn't do enough? Do you ever? I mean, when is the point where you say I need something different here? Well, I mean, knock on everything so far. I haven't really had that experience. Although for the most recent book, I Am One, we did need to change some of the art because it wasn't quite going in the same direction. So we, that was, that actually was thankfully Erica's involvement that kind of caught that. It was in the middle of, you know, when, I mean, it's still an issue, of course, what's happening down South between us and South America and like, and politically involved with the wall that was being built. But at the time that that book was being not necessarily written, but the time it was being illustrated, this was very much on all of our minds. Uh, and that wasn't the sole purpose behind I Am One when Susan wrote it, but what's happening in a moment kind of can shift, you know, what, how you're looking at a project. And of course, how we look at I Am One now at a time where we all have to take our responsibility to wear a mask or to make safe choices to affect our entire communities. We are just one person who can affect or impact. All of these moments that are happening along the way of I am one, though it started before all that with Susan, she taps into this, she taps into the fact that we are one person who can make a change, right? When you, when you, when those seeds were being planted in Susan, there was a lot of protests and marching, which there is now too, but it was different. It was different marching and protests then. And it was all these children were coming to life for climate change. And it was, there was all these things happening in the world. And what she does so well is she manages to take, you know, what's happening in the world and bring it in and then bring it back out in a way for children that is this larger umbrella idea that you are a person who can make change. It's very simple, right? You can affect the world, you, making them believe that they truly, truly can having a book that tells them this is true. But yet the way that we are making change has changed dramatically through the making of this book. 
And so what was on our minds in the moment of the art is actually what was not what's on our minds in this moment right now. But we had to be really sensitive about that, about that wall and what that meant for the context of this book, literally and metaphorically, um, and then how to show that. So yeah, that, that segues into what I was going to ask. So Susan, especially with the, with the I Am One book, you, you do go into some serious issues. How, how do you condense that for a younger audience? How do you make it digestible for them? I mean, you know, I guess I, I think about, well, I, I have my own children. I was an elementary school teacher for many years. And, you know, um, when you're raising your kids, when you're working with kids, um, when you're considering kids, you are, or around them, you are always getting, you know, they, they pick up on, on at least the energy of what's going on in the world. And often what they imagine in their own heads is far more stressful or challenging or upsetting than what's really happening or what they're able to verbalize. Um, and sometimes it can make them feel helpless or um, like, like just things are coming at them or happening to them. And I guess I think about all the, the questions I was asked and still get asked and how potentially unprepared I was to answer them or, um, but how, you know, how would I explain? I know kids are so smart. And like I said, they're just absorbing it all. So all the adults around them are, you know, freaking out or full of anxiety or talking about what's going on and they get these little bits and pieces. And I sort of always want them to have a sense that, um, they they are a part of things. They are uh, they have some agency, some ownership, some ability to to participate, to express themselves, to take care of themselves. And so, I guess I just think about um, the bigger picture. What are the big things that are going on in their lives that maybe they don't totally understand? And then, just using language that they can relate to, to kind of help them cope, help them find the tools within themselves. Um, so I, I, I mean, it's just, I guess, playing with the language, remembering what it was like to be a child and what I wish someone had said to me in, in some of these circumstances. And then, you know, not ever talking down to, but really just empowering and, and you know, uh, connecting them to the bigger picture in a way that's not frightening, that's more empowering and, and self-care focused. If that, hopefully that answered some of your questions. Definitely. No, that definitely answered the question. Uh, Erica, do picture books with a point do better than picture books that are kind of just there for entertainment value? Well, even if it's there for entertainment value, that is still a point. True. I do, I, I have, I, I do work with some writers um, who are fiercely uh, uh, vigilant about, you know, keeping to the, um, the entertainment value of a text just for the entertainment value, the fun for the fun of it. It's a lot harder today. It's just a harder sell. Um, I was recently talking with an author, not one of my clients, who is a best-selling author um, very well known, who has done, notoriously has done picture books that are sort of like the clever joke, has also done picture books that are sort of um, of the moment. 
And he was saying that what he could sell in 2015 and 16, maybe even 17, he could not sell today. Uh, and so there is only so much room on the bookshelves in the bookstores. And um, especially right now, people's time is so limited. So if they're going to get behind something, right, because right, their child is next to them, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next month, where they're going to be, how they're going to, you know, be living. It's like people, we were always fighting for editors and art directors' attentions, always. But now, I mean, we're really, really fighting. So what's going to, what is going to make somebody sit up and take notice and say, this is the book? This is the book. And so I would argue, and I have in many query letters lately, that like my own query letters, you query us, I query them, and then they query sales. You know, it just keeps going. We're all just selling all the time. Um, uh, that we need a good laugh. We need to be taken out um, of the moment. Uh, but it has to be really, really great wordplay has to be, you know, it's like, it's like, yes, can it be funny, but can a teacher also use it to talk about puns or idioms or, you know, where it's layers. So this industry is all about layers, right? It's like, can it have a, can it hook into a season? Can, is, it, is, it, is a grandparent going to buy it? Can a teacher teach something off of it? Um, so it, it, yes, it could be for the fun of it, but can it also have some of those other layers so that the publishers can feel like they have a real opportunity to sell it in and to have a reason to talk about something. So Susan, when you're starting to write a book, do you focus on theme first? Is that one of the first things that triggers you to write a book about something or does it start with the character? Where do your ideas usually begin? Um, my ideas typically begin, I mean, either with a, a theme or an experience. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sitting around saying oh, what's happening in the world right now and what should I be writing about? I mean, I'm really thinking about what moves me, what I see moves kids, um, and what experiences have shaped my life that might shape someone else's life. You know, th those are the kinds of things that I consider. Um, but the story comes from again, an experience or, you know, an overall kind of theme or, or a tool or something that I want, I really want to share. Um, I'm not, I, you know, my, I, I just have, I'm doing this um, Fractured Fairy Tale series. Um, we've had the first of three come out already. And, and that was um, the three little yogis and the wolf who lost his breath. And that was, you know, that was characters, that was narrative, that, and that's something I am still learning to do. Um, so, but it, I, so that, you know, that was already set up for me. But mostly my stories, again, are ex experiences, themes, that, that, that's what drives me versus a character. And you have to know what you, what you do well. Oh, I'm not like, funny. I'm, I might be funny in person, hopefully, maybe, but <laughs> not so much in my storytelling. You yeah, know? you have to be honest, honest with yourself about who you are and what you do well. And usually sort of what you love and what's driving you and your, your, your real voice, the real you when you're with your friends or when you're with your kids or when you're with your students um, or the real you that cracks yourself up. 
you know, or when you feel like, oh, that was a really good thought. That was, that was the one. Like you have to tap into that rather than try to tap into the marketplace or try to tap into somebody else's. Also, is if you're thinking about, you know, okay, look, what is happening in this moment? I should be, you know, writing a book about this because this is happening. Well, by the time your book comes out, the world, as we know, will most likely have shifted again. And so what might have been sort of of the moment while you're writing a year, two years later may not be, or, you know, a million other books might have come out with that, you know, so it's, I, for me personally, anyway, I don't, I, I don't get stuck or I try not to, or I don't want to get stuck in like, what is happening right in this moment that needs addressing right now? Because that'll, that'll change. And, and it's really, what are these sort of universal things that we feel, experience, whatever that, have been will carry on you know that are more kind of inclusive of of everyone as we go forward so i, I want to revisit the quote that i used at the top of the show about picture books being the first art a child sees susan that, that sounds like a lot of pressure is that is that the way you see it is do you kind of embrace that i mean is it the first art a child sees <laughs> According to Tommy DePaulo, it is. <laughs> I, I, I mean, was just... I think it maybe is a very, one, one of the first and a very powerful one. I mean, I would, you know, there, there, are, there are board books. There are um, other potentially ex experiences with, you know, depending on your circumstance or your exposure or things like that. I do think, though, that um, it is is a very powerful medium. It is very powerful because it might be the first art that, that a child sees that they actually begin to understand, connect with, see bits of themselves in, you know, learn about humor, empathy, um, all the feelings that they feel, learning how to put words to those feelings, seeing, seeing, seeing the visual art and, 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 understanding stories beyond the text, you know, making connections and inferences and all of that. So, I mean, it's certainly a powerful uh, form of art and one of the earliest. Um, and I, although I certainly would never go against anything Tommy DePaolo said, I mean, come on, <laughs> really. Um, so yes, I agree with him. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's an important point of connection and exposure. Um, so, I mean, it is, it is a, a powerful work of art that is seen so early in a child's development. So I, I wanna change subjects here a bit. So Erica, when, when you see a query for a picture book, do you have an artistic vision in mind already? Do you, do you have to think of, oh, I have a good artist in mind to do this, or can you just pick it up based on text alone? I think I, I basically do it on text alone. And I think every agent is gonna be different this way. I am partial, partial to the read aloud experience of it. And so that that's very compelling for me. I'm also partial to like, thematically what I think is important like in the moment, like what, like what I'm looking for or what I hear other, what I hear editors are looking for as well. Like having sort of an, a, a, 
an awareness of polls in people's lists and what, where I think I might be able to place something. I am not, as much as I want to be, I am not the best at matching um, authors and artists. <laughs> I wish I was. And I love being part of the process so I can learn from amazing art directors. And, and I have friends who are agents who are incredible packagers. That is what they do. Um, that is not, I don't know, I, I don't know is, see that. So I have clients who are really good at it too, much better than I am. So no, I, I'm not looking visually. I am looking for where, if it might have a place in the marketplace, in my opinion, if it should have a place in the marketplace, if, um, if I think I can sell it to a particular, if anybody comes to mind, um, if, you know, if it has read aloud potential, um, those are, you know, and I'm looking at this author, I'm sort of looking beyond just the text to the person. You know, who is this person? What is important to this person? How does this person work? What, what other texts do they have? It's very, it's not, it's not easy. I know a lot of agents say they, they need to see at least three texts <clears throat> that are in good shape in order to take on a picture book author that they feel like they can sell. And I never said that before. I sort of fall in love with something and like, I, I'm like, whatever, I, I'm going to take me and I'm going to sell it. But I, I understand it because there is an expectation from authors that you will build a career for them. And that can be very slow if you come with one text ready to go. It can take a long time to nail a second text. Now, not for everybody, but it can and 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 I find and you know authors of picture book you can write a lot really fast uh, and it takes a real I'm not saying not everybody can write a lot really fast really really well but the vast majority cannot it takes it takes a commitment and um, it's kind of like slow your roll to like work on one piece to get it to be really fantastic and and I can see why an agent might want authors to have done that work to have three of those because then they can more easily fulfill the author's expectation that once you sell that first or once you take them on, their career is going to start going. If you have not done that work, then you're going to be doing that work, you know, while you're with your agent and it can, it can, take, it can take real time. So, did I answer the question? I you can't did. remember. No, okay. You did. And you, and you answered another important question, which I was even going to ask, which was this three picture yeah. thing. I, I didn't know that. So that's very helpful to know. Um, Susan, this, this question's inspired by your book, The Museum. Uh, have you, when you see an artistic style, do you ever kind of write a story based on that? Just sort of thinking in terms of what the story to that picture could be. I'm, I'm, just, I'm always curious to hear from the writer's mind what happens when they when this idea comes around? Do I think of it? So, so have you ever seen like an artistic style and thought I, I could write a story that fits that style? I mean, I, I guess in a way, you know, when I, when I wrote Hey Wall and it was focused on street art and I sort of felt like my, my the, the poetry and the movement and the repetition in the text um, felt like uh, that kind of art, that kind of um, movement, expression, mural making, even graffiti, if we're going to go that far, because that was 
something I'd had an experience with growing up and that was, you know, the inspiration for the story. I mean, um, certainly when I wrote Rock and Roll Soul, I, the text, I felt it, it had a musical quality to it. So it was kind of, you know, my writing, uh, I, I was writing in a way that felt connected to music in some way. Um, for the museum, that one was uh, really incorporating so many different styles of art that um, to me that was more writing in a way that felt very, uh, that there was, it felt like there was movement and there was exploration. So I do think about that a little sort of the rhythm of the text with regard to whatever the, the focus is. Um, I ha you know, I guess that the one that stood out to me would be Hey Wall, that sort of street art graffiti. And I thought specifically yeah. I could write a story about that. Because but this is a common, like this happens a lot actually. For example, Matthew Burgess, <clears throat> who's the author most recently of Drawing on Walls, the picture book about Keith Haring, um, which if you have not checked it out, it's incredible, and you should, Drawing on Walls by Matthew Burgess, especially if you're, those of you in the audience um, are writing nonfiction. Um, he, um, Charizad, uh, whose last name is escaping me, is an illustrator, and her agent came to us with an image that she had drawn and uh, was wondering if Matthew would write a story around that character. And, and, and interestingly enough, I had had lunch with Matthew just a few weeks earlier. Um, and Matthew is a poet and an educator. And when you're with a poet and an educator, you cannot help but bear your soul. And so I had been talking about one of my sons um, and challenges he was having on the playground. And so um, we were really talking about, you know, how do you find your people? How do you stay true to who you are in that process as a child? And then here came in this, this uh, drawing of this boy surrounded by birds. And, you know, and Matthew took sort of this drawing by Shahrzad and this, and this conversation we had had and his own life experiences and I'm sure many other influences as well. But what came out of that is this book called Bird Boy, which is publishing uh, next spring in 21, uh, about a boy who's new to a school and, um, <clears throat> you know, could make the choice to, to try to fit in when he very clearly from the very beginning does not, but instead sort of owns the fact that he is having these relationships with these birds at recess rather than the other kids. And eventually other kids, you know, find their interest in him for who he truly is and he attracts the right kids to him and so that process of of agents bringing art to writers uh, is something that happens um, a lot it's something that happens on the publisher side too where a publisher has an artist who they work with um, or has an artist who they want to work with and they might say you know oh has for example Matthew has Matthew seen so-and-so's art might there be something in his portfolio that interests Matthew that might inspire him to write a text um, this is also a great exercise if you're trying to find a way into a story and you're feeling blocked go to your favorite um, your favorite artists websites go into their portfolio take one of their pieces and use it as a launch pad for writing. And it might help you to really hone in on character 
especially today when we're all so focused on issues and, and wanting to give back and wanting to give back through our art, um, a lot of what I'm seeing is, is thematically heavy-handed and didactic, and there is there, the, the character is lost. Now that can work, you know, I'm not saying it can't. Look at the I Am series, right? I mean, it's, but it's brilliant for its themes. Um, but the, the, the majority of picture books that work and that get acquired are character-based. And, and, our, um, and the publishers are looking for a unique character. You can look at the, um, you can look at Aram Kim, if you don't know her work, it's A-R-A-M Kim. And she has these picture books about Yumi, who is a, who's a Korean cat, um, <laughs> a Korean cat child. Uh, and the first book was No Kimchi for Me. Now, now there's three books and she's working on her fourth, all about Yumi. And now they're even branding the books, Holiday House is the publisher, Yumi Friends and Family. So each book has a blast on it, like a, a sticker blast, where it is tying them together as a series um, visually, which is going to be great in the retail market. Uh, and the reason it worked is because Yumi was, was a, a, a rich character. No kimchi for me, right? She um, was afraid of eating the kimchi because it was spicy and her big brothers made fun of her because she wouldn't eat the kimchi. And then the next one was let's go to Taekwondo, right? And now Yumi is like going to Taekwondo and she can't break the board and she's scared of breaking the board, um, which came out of us brainstorming, you know, uh, Aram grew up in Korea and she moved here and um, so she's Korean and we're looking at her own personal culture and we're looking at what's important to her and her world. And then we were looking at, okay, what else can happen to you, me? You know, and I'm like, oh, so many kids, you know, they take Taekwondo in my neighborhood. Like kids take Taekwondo in all New York City neighborhoods. It's like a big thing in New York City. And it's a big thing culturally for Korea, you know? And so Aram started taking Taekwondo. She started going to Taekwondo classes, you know, herself, so she could understand where there might be conflict in that setting. What, what was true for her? Um, and now the next one is Sunday Fun Day in Koreatown. And so I urge you to explore character um, because publishers really want that from you. So this is going to segue into the last question. I, I want people to know in the Q&A, Erica has been excellent with answering people's questions yes, already. Yes, I'm trying. We're going, to get some more, we're going to get some more of those questions here in a second, but I just want to end my questioning with recommendations. Erica, you just gave us a whole bunch, so I'll give you a break and, and go to Susan for recommendations okay. first, but then if you had any more you didn't get in, we'll come back to you. So yeah. Susan. Well, um, for my book recommendations? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, all right. So here's my... <laughs> Um, so I, you know, I, uh, I, I, it's a tough one because there are so many good ones and there's great ones coming out constantly, consistently. I mean, and um, Erica's already mentioned a couple. Um, but what I would do if you're really looking for good book recommendations uh, is to actually go follow the the educators out there who are compiling these incredible lists and are constantly updating them and and breaking them down into what you know what categories they represent and all, um so if you're i mean obviously go into your local in or not go in you can't go in now but go online to your indie bookstores to support them and see what's new and talk to the um 
owners or the book buyers or book and, and booksellers and see what's new. But I would follow people like um, the 2-2 teacher on Instagram or Here We Read or John Shu, who's a, a librarian. So um, Mr. Shu Reads. Um, and I would go and look for the educators who are really recommending incredible books that are out now, coming out soon, and again, that are sort of broken down into these various categories of whatever you're looking for in terms of representation, in terms of humor, in terms of powerful messages. Um, so those would be, that would actually be my recommendation to get the best book recommendations. Mm -hmm. And I do have so many recommendations and I'm so sad that I'm not home because I would normally never do this call without actually Nearly. picking up, you know, hundreds of thousands of books to show you guys. It's very frustrating to me that I don't have my bookshelf with me. Um, <clears throat> but like, for example, um, if you're looking to write, if you're looking to write nonfiction and you're thinking about concepts, and I think I saw that maybe in one of the questions, Joyce Hesselberth. I don't know how to like chat without answering a question to write these names um, in here for you. But Joyce Hesselberth, that's H-E-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-T-H. Her first book was Mapping Sam with Green Willow, and it actually won the Bologna Ragazzi honor as one of the best nonfiction books uh, in the world for the year it, it came out. She does a brilliant job of mashing narrative, what do they call it, like fictional informational books. It's sort of like narrative nonfiction fiction. Um, her second one was Pitter Pattern. Uh, and the one that's coming next is Beatrice in a Tree. So the first one, Mapping Sam, follows a cat. Where does the cat go at night? Let's map it. So we map where the cat goes. We map the flower that the cat smells. We map the pond that he puts his paw in. We map, we look at the blueprint of the building that it wanders into. It's, and then it gets a little bit more like, can we map her dreams? It's really beautiful. Pitter pattern is about patterns. But in terms, if you're looking to do concepts, publishers are looking for new, fresh concepts. And they're looking for a way to make it narrative. So you might also look at two dogs on a trike. Um, by Gabby Snyder, who's not my client, but it is illustrated by Robin Rosenthal, who is. And it is a brilliant example of how to do a counting book. How do you do another counting book? Look at that book for an example. It's really funny about this cat who's following these dogs who are going from transportation vehicle to transportation vehicle. Cumulative, one dog on the trike, two dogs, and they don't know the cat is following. The cat wants in on that counting, <laughs> and the cat eventually like shows up. Now, it's a great example, too, of how Robin, a brilliant illustrator, was able to add humor with her art to really um, elevate the humor that was already in the text. Another one is Christy Hale, Waterland. It is so cool about like water and landforms and how she, she's, again, she's an author illustrator, and so author illustrators are able to play with ideas in ways that sometimes it's hard for an author alone. Um, if you're a poet, and I, I saw that there was a question about why rhyming is so, <laughs> rhyming is so hard. I have now tried to go out with two rhyming picture books in the last month and I am not having success. Um, they're, they're good, but they're not brilliant rhymes but they're good. 
I think they are, but I think they're, I think one of them is by a brilliant um, lyricist. Like I, for him, the rhyme, I think actually, no, for him, the rhyme is brilliant, but the story is familiar. For the other, the rhyme is not brilliant, but the story and the concept I think is brilliant and it's not working. And I'm like, editors, can't you just fix the other? But they, they don't have, they don't, they're not going to. And so I want you to realize that that's the reality of today is that unless you are a lyricist, a truly a lyricist, don't, don't hinge, don't, don't use rhyme as a way in. And I know, I know sometimes for a lot of people it is. If you need that for your very first draft, go for it. But then sit back and try to write it without the rhyme and just free yourself of the rhyme um, and try to find your voice, your voice, um, without relying on that rhyme to feel like it's satisfying. So one last question before we wrap up today. Just if you could give one piece of advice to aspiring picture book writers, what would it be? Susan, we'll start with you. Um, what would it be? It would be to write what moves you, right? Write with your own voice, with your own heart, from your own place. Not, you know, it's great to read lots of picture books and, and have lots of reference, reference points and information and to see what's out there and what's happening and, different styles and different concepts and all of that. But when it comes down to it, it's you who's telling the story. So it's gotta be really authentic to you. Um, and, and, and so sticking to or finding or working on your voice and the things that are important to you will make the most authentic story and, and you're, Selling yourself, and you can stand behind and buy that. Um, so just stick to what feels good and what is true to you. That would be my advice. Very good. Erica, your advice? Um, well, you're already in a, like, in, like, a part of a class program, so that's, that's one big one is to, you know, keep seeking out critique groups, keep seeking out writing classes. It's really a process. Uh, it can take years for the first one, and then it can take years for the second one. Um, you know, the, uh, Kate Messner, I think, has this brilliant um, uh, piece on her website about, it's something like, out of the hundred ideas she has for a picture book, she writes them all down. Out of that hundred, maybe she tries to write 50. Out of that 50, maybe she does a second draft of 20. Out of that 20, maybe she keeps working on 10. Out of that 10, maybe she works, and I'm totally botching, this is not what she said, but she said something like this. And I think it was Kate, and maybe it wasn't. Um, out of those 10, you know, maybe she brings five to critique group. Out of that five, you know, maybe she has one that she brings to her agent. You know, it's like, so, or that she brings to a submission to an agent. Um, for her, it's to her agent. But that, is, that is the work that is truly happening here. Um, with authors who are making it. Well, thank you both so much for being here. You've been wonderful and enlightening. I really appreciate your time and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and good yeah. luck everybody. I'm happy to come back anytime with a show and tell <laughs> once I'm back home.
Thanks, everybody. Good luck. Bye. All right. So for everybody who wants to get involved, we have our Twitter pitch party, which if you have a, uh, a, a picture book of your own that you want to pitch, you can get on Twitter between now and Friday at midnight and pitch your picture book. I will take as many pitches as I can and send them on to Erica for feedback. Just there, there on the Gotham Writers Inside Writing page, there is a, uh, a best practices for how to participate in this. First off, you want to make sure you include hashtag P-I-T-G-O-T-H-A-M, Pit Gotham, in your tweet. Otherwise, I won't be able to find it. You don't have to tag us or tag anyone. You just have to include that hashtag and I'll be able to find it. Otherwise, make sure you also condense your entire book pitch into a single tweet. Multiple tweet pitches are not allowed. But if you have more than one project to pitch, by all means, pitch as many as you want. Just make sure you do separate tweets. Uh, also, a good comparable title or two is a good idea. And again, you can look at these guidelines on the site, but make sure you include hashtag P-I-T-G-O-T-H-A-M. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Gotham Writers Conference, one of the big things we added this year was our own picture book table where you can sit down. Obviously, it's not going to be at a table. It's going to be in a Zoom room since we're doing this all digitally. But you'll be at a table with two agents in the field of picture book writing, one of which is Erica, who you all met today. If you have a project that you want feedback and advice on moving forward with, this is the place to be. Registration's open. Uh, this is also on the Gotham Writers website. Lastly, next week is our query letter evaluation show, which is a special episode of Inside Writing where uh, we'll be joined by two agents and we'll just go through a bunch of query letters that you provide and we will talk about what works, what doesn't, what could be better. So if you have a query that you want considered uh, to be included on the show, send it to josh at gothamwriters.com. That's me. Uh, we have quite a bit already, but I'm going to try to get through as many as I can. So if you want to send your query in for feedback from two agents, send it to josh at gothamwriters.com. So that's what's next week inside query letter writing. And we will see you then. Thank you all for being here.